1: On today's episode of At The Margin, I'm joined by Dr. Flavio Tuxfair to discuss the economics of vaccines. Flavio is a lecturer in economics at Cambridge and has published widely on the economics of vaccines, immunisation and social distancing. There's something here for everybody, really. Um, There's insight for policymakers, which to learn something about how to approach social distancing and immunisation and vaccine related policy something for the nerdy economists who want to think more about how some of the various academic concepts apply in real life, and something for the current affairs junkie as we look through issues such as vaccine nationalism from an economics lens. Thanks very much to Flavio, and thanks very much to all the patrons for keeping the show on the road. patreon.com forward slash at the margin if you would like to become a patron. Okay, I'll leave you to the conversation be very interesting and useful i think for a lot of people and people working in policy as well um we find it very interesting but maybe we could kick off and just discuss the whole issue of economics of vaccines so in most people's minds i think nowadays we think about vaccines and we think that okay we just need to get the vaccines out there but where does economics come into the situation in terms of vaccine rollout or vaccines in general Sure.
0: So, uh, thanks first for, for, for inviting me to talk about these issues. It's, it's much appreciated. So, my interest in, in vaccines um, is is part of a broader interest in the economics of infectious diseases, where we use tools from economics uh, both to develop policies, but also to better understand uh, how they spread in populations. And that, that basically boils down to understanding how individuals behave in the face of infectious diseases. So I've done a, a number of different papers that look at different aspects of decision-making and policy during epidemics. And, and so what, what these different papers have done, uh, what these different research projects have done, is they've looked at the use of different interventions. So uh, b- vaccine is just one of those possible interventions. The other ones we that spring to mind are social distancing or lockdown policies um, and treatment. And so vaccine is just is one corner of that kind of larger research project. Um, so my interest uh, started from there. and and so uh, about about uh, ten years ago, um, we realized that th- th- there was a, an important paper written uh, that looked at vaccine rollouts uh, from an economics perspective and found that if you if you were to decentralize the vaccine decision, that is, if you were to ask people to decide for themselves whether or not they wanted to vaccinate themselves, then they would in fact choose to get vaccinated at exactly the same time as what would be considered socially optimal. Um, and that was somewhat of a of a surprise because economists have always used vaccines as an example of a of an activity that has strong positive externalities. Uh, and that would point towards uh, vaccination decisions from individuals to be uh, not necessarily aligned with those that would be socially optimal.
1: Okay. Uh, so just, just uh, delving into that a bit deeper. So this is a nice example of where we have an under-provision of public goods, I suppose, and that I get a vaccine and it has a positive effect on everybody else, but I don't weigh that into my decision-making. So therefore, my private decision-making is not necessarily what's best for society, but this paper would have found that our private decision-making aligns with what's best for society. In a way, maybe we're taking into account this positive benefit for society in our own decision.
0: So that's exactly right. So it turns out that 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 paper was written by Francis in 1997. It turned out that it rested on a number of very specific assumptions. And what my co-author and I found out, that's Fred Chen, what Mm -hmm. we found out is that if we were to marginally change any of those underlying conditions, we actually would get to a situation where, uh, there was not social efficiency of decentralized decisions uh, with vaccines. So, in terms of a public good provision, that's exactly right. Mm. Now, the thing is, maybe I should finesse that a little bit. Uh, the, the vaccine has has two main main benefits. One is that it mitigates the effects of becoming infected. That is, it reduces the harms of being infected in the first place. For example, by reducing mortality or the the likelihood that you will have to uh, to go to hospital. So that's that's one benefit. And that's a benefit which is primarily a private benefit in the sense that it doesn't influence disease transmission per se. The second effect of the vaccine is that it either reduces the probability of infection in the first place or that it reduces the transmissibility to third parties. And that's really where the the social benefit of the vaccine kicks in, because when I now decide for myself whether or not to vaccinate myself, uh, I, I might only take my the private direct benefit into account, which is that I want to reduce my the harms that come my way. Mm. But to the extent that it also reduces the transmissibility, then I also benefit others. And that's exactly where the public uh, goods provision comes in, that if I were to take that into account, I would more readily vaccinate myself than would otherwise be the case. Okay. So that's exactly right. It's a classical example of of public goods provision or under provision in this case.
1: So your paper found that, um, that that classical example there was a certain number of assumptions is that right that, that that relies on that don't necessarily hold what were those assumptions or what what was the deviation that you found
0: so so there were a number of assumptions the first one was that the, the vaccine pr- confers perfect immunity so so that meant that somebody who was already vaccinated would not care about the vaccination decisions of others in the population now if you have a vaccine that only gives you imperfect protection, then there's still a residual risk that you face, even that you are vaccinated. And that means now that other people vaccinated themselves still benefits you, even if you are vaccinated. In, in, in a world with perfect protection, once you're vaccinated, you're no longer in harm's way. And so you don't care about mm-hmm. others' vaccination decisions. So that was, that was the first critical assumption. The second critical assumption was uh, perfect uh, homogeneity or, or symmetry in a sense. And that was basically the idea that everybody uh, was, uh, was identical in the population. Now, what that assumption bought in this original analysis is that uh, everybody would wait, they would basically trade off the costs and benefits of waiting another instance to get vaccinated, and that they would all get to a point where um, the vaccine decision would be triggered. That is, at some point, the risks of becoming infected were so overwhelming that it now justified uh, a costly vaccine. Now, the problem is that if you have perfect homogeneity, everyone in the population is the same, then everybody basically vaccinates at the same time. Now, once Mm -hmm. everybody vaccinates at the same time, I mean, if you have a perfect vaccine, that means that by definition, there is no one left in the population on which you can have positive externalities because everyone is also vaccinating at the same time. And so, uh, if if you were to say if you were to depart from this perfect homogeneity assumption and say you have high high susceptibility and low susceptibility individuals, then what would happen um, in a socially optimal plan would be that you first vaccinate um, the first group. And then at some point, you'd vaccinate the second group, which is basically what's going on today. Now, the thing is that when you have people vaccinated in groups at different points in time, then the people who are vaccinated later will basically benefit from the vaccination decisions of the earlier group. And that means that from a social perspective, you might want to bring, bring the, the vaccination date back from that first group so that the second group can also indirectly benefit from it. And so this is another instance in which these very stylized assumptions of this original study break down in reality, and therefore there is actually scope for uh, for public intervention to correct these externalities.
1: Okay. Um, so a lot of information there. Let me just try and get my head around it. Sure. Um, <laughs> so, so when I think about when you introduce these these assumptions, usually it's the case of it means that behavior changes. But in this case... The homogeneity assumption. When we get rid of that, it's a case that the objective changes. Is that correct? So therefore, we have to we have to maybe vaccinate those who are vulnerable first, as opposed to um, everybody at the same time.
0: So it is it is true that I mean in, in in all these settings, it is true that the objective of the individual is different from those of the planner because the planner, uh, uh, you know, for example, like the national health service in in the UK, should in principle care about the entire population. Whereas each individual will typically care about themselves and maybe uh, a small group of people like friends and family with whom they're in contact. But they will typically not take the benefits of, of the entire population uh, into account. So it is true in all these settings that, um, that there's, uh, there are differences in objectives. Now, I'm a little bit hesitant to say this thing about the behavior because this, the mm-hmm. early literature on vaccines actually disregarded behavior in a very specific sense. So, it, it is true that the decision to vaccinate, in, in, that, in that sense, there is behavior. But many of the trade offs that are involved in, in vaccines in the current crisis come from a different kind of behavior, which is the interaction between the vaccine decision and the alternative, which is social distancing. So, uh, for example, for diseases like, for, for vaccines like the MMR vaccine, okay. Uh, in that kind of context, uh, nobody ever thought that social distancing was uh, was a, a, a reasonable way of trying to to avoid um, to avoid the, the diseases were protected by the MMR. So there the other decision was really truly one of when to, to vaccinate and, and, and who to vaccinate. Whereas today the trade-off is really not just whether or not to vaccinate, but it is also how the vaccination decision interacts, with for example, lockdown policies or in, in the case of individuals, uh, decisions of whether or not to protect themselves through social distancing
1: okay okay that 's really that's yeah quite interesting um, there is a rationale then for public intervention uh, essentially i suppose will be the will be will be the take home point here and that sort of intervention, is that along the lines of what's, what's happening or is there lessons, further lessons then from that interaction that, that, you know, policymakers could take in terms of making sure that rollout is, is, is efficient or maximizes welfare?
0: So, uh, indeed, um, the, 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 there's a very clear rationale for, for public intervention to ensure vaccine uptake. Uh, because people would, other, under normal circumstances, some people might not want to vaccinate because they, they see very little private benefit, uh, and because they don't take into account the, these positive externalities. Right now, the biggest constraint does not seem to to be to to get people to get vaccinated. Although there has been some countries where vaccine uptake has been disappointing, I think at this point in time, the, the kind of the major issue from a policy perspective is to get a higher capacity to basically get more vaccines available. Uh, there seems to be still, you know, supply far being outstripped by demand at the moment. But, but in, 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 let's say, if you we were to disregard that particular issue, the kind of policy interventions that we could consider, of course, is the ones that, you know, economists traditionally do in these contexts, which is some kind of Pigouvian taxes, or in this case, subsidies, uh, extended to those people who are willing to take the vaccine, and that could be particularly for people who have very low private benefit from the vaccine, such as younger people who are less susceptible to the uh, to falling ill from becoming infected and therefore would have the lowest private benefits from getting vaccinated in the first place.
1: That's a very interesting concept because um it feels like just when you're when you were talking earlier, it felt a bit like because we're aware that um we may be a vector of transmission, and and that might impact those we know and love. Well, it internalizes that external effect to a certain extent. But as people get more more people get vaccinated, and it's only the younger people that are left, that internalizing effect doesn't really isn't as strong, perhaps.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. Now, now one thing I just want to come back to is that you asked, and I think I didn't actually address was this issue about uh, prioritizing different groups in terms of vaccines. Now, in principle, as I mentioned earlier, there are different effects, or or rather the vaccine works in different ways. One of them is it reduces transmission, and the other one is that it mitigates the effects of becoming infected. Now, there's there's an old debate in the literature that tries to settle the question of whether it is best to reduce transmission directly and, uh, or whether it is better to give vaccines to the people who are most at risk or so the most vulnerable in case they were to get infected. And so this is a real trade-off because uh, mm. if, if you want to reduce overall spread of the infection, you would want to target those people who are the most likely to spread the disease. Now, those people may not themselves be at much risk of becoming ill if they were to get infected. So think of people for example very young people who have very you know active social lives or who go to school and so on these people if they were to get infected themselves might not have very severe consequences the problem of course is that they spread the disease easier than people who have less or fewer social contacts and so therefore you know an arc and a decent argument can be made that what you want to do even if your overall target is to reduce the number of infections of, of people who are most at risk, is by reducing transmission. What the UK has done and most other countries have done is instead of targeting transmission, they have targeted the people who are most vulnerable. So that is, we have prioritized people by age and by, and by you know, underlying health conditions and so on. And now we're working down kind of the, the, uh, the, the, the different age groups and, and we do it that way. Now, one reason that, that this has been done is that early on when the vaccine was developed, first of all, it was developed with a view of reducing the uh, the negative consequences of becoming infected in the first place. that was kind of the the number one goal when these vaccines were designed, and second, it was not known early on whether transmission was re- significantly reduced people people thought and uh, conjectured mm-hmm. that this might be the case, but it was not clear and now the, the thing about you know reducing transmission relies exclusively on that on that issue, and so if if you're in a situation where you don't know whether a vaccine will actually reduce transmission, you cannot design a rollout policy that is predicated on the idea that it will definitely reduce transmission so I think that in retrospect was probably a a, a, a judicious choice of of of, um, of, of you know a, a judicious uh, uh, decision in terms of uh, of sure. who to give the vaccine to.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm reminded of, of a comment when that the the variant, the U- well, what's known as the UK variant, this is a disputed term, but um when that was rolled out and people were saying the effect of a more dangerous like a virus that once you contract it it has more extreme effects versus a virus that is more transmissible and the transmissibility increases the um negative like the social negative effects in terms of people getting hospitalized by a much greater extent, almost it, it increases exponentially versus maybe a linear increase when, it, when it, in, in terms of the effect. So I think that maybe feeds into this sort of trade-off here, where we're talking about we want to reduce transmission. Well, that can have a much wider effect if we can reduce the transmission. Would that would that be a fair analogy? Yeah, but but you need to know
0: that it actually is possible, right? You need to know that the vaccine actually has that effect. Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, yes. That's yes and- key. <laughs> And, and that, that is exactly the key. But, but you are right that there, there, there is this, you know, this little bit of a puzzling thing that uh, diseases that are much more tra- you know, trans- transmissible than others might not be worse. Depends on how, mm-hmm. on how the people who are infected, how long they have it for. So there are diseases that are much more infectious than, than COVID-19. Uh, and but the, yet there are fewer people who get infected because the people who get infected, they pass away very fast and therefore don't transmit the disease to third parties and so you get these sure. li- slightly counterintuitive results that uh, that really the worst of all of all possible worlds is is a particularly fine-tuned combination of parameters rather than just being the one that has the highest transmissibility and the highest mortality and so on
1: Hmm. Um, one thing that, that you've done work on that might be interesting to discuss is the issue of uh, vaccine nationalism and how that plays out. Um, could, maybe you could just tell us a bit about that and what sort of work you've done in that space.
0: Sure. So, so vaccine nationalism is really just uh, it's really just any set of practices that reduces uh, or rather prioritizes a particular nation, uh, in, you know, over others. In things that have to do with, with an infectious disease outbreak, so it's called vaccine nationalism, but really a, there's a whole set of practices that are very similar in spirit, if not directly to do with with vaccines. So, for example, uh, if you were to do an export ban on on ventilators or on ingredients that go into um, to antiviral medicines or or any such thing, even though they're not actually vaccines, they, they fall under the same category, and so mm-hmm. and so. This work came up because of this uh, very rankers, uh, uh you know, back and forth between the United Kingdom and the European Union about access to AstraZeneca vaccines, and so uh, I, I thought that was interesting to look at, uh, and, and there are some very nice parallels to other spheres of, of economic thinking, uh, in particular to the to the theory of um, of um, preemption games, which you you might be familiar with from other contexts, and the the idea is simple is simply that each individual country will, will, will weigh the costs and benefits of moving early, in this case with vaccine development. Uh, and the pros and cons are as follows. On the one hand, you want, of course, to get uh, vaccines to your population uh, as, as fast as you possibly can. Uh, and that uh, involves, of course, putting money into research and to, to build up capacity and to sign contracts with with, with pharmaceutical companies and, and what have you. But on the other hand, there are also benefits to not rushing this process. And those benefits come in, for example, early on in the vaccine development process, it's very difficult to know which ones are the vaccine candidates that are actually going to be uh, paying off in terms of uh, effectiveness. And safety, and so th- there's a very large set of possible vaccines that one could, in principle, um, uh, invest in, but you can't invest in all of them. And 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 if you were to delay somewhat your, your decision, that can better inform this choice about which vaccines to uh, to concentrate on. So 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 there is this uh, that there, there is this trade-off between uh, between delaying and and going going quick for each individual country. Now on top of that there is the fact that vaccine candidates and vaccine capacity is very scarce in the short run. It's very difficult and very expensive to train people and to ramp up production capacity uh, in the very short run. And so that 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 adds an additional layer of urgency in the decision of each country because they will now not they will not be able to benefit from slightly delaying these decisions because they're afraid that they're going to be preempted mm. by by rivals, and so uh, and so the UK in this particular instance moved faster than the European Union, and therefore, um, of course, had access to these very scarce uh, production capacity that that AstraZeneca had. So, uh, so that was kind of the angle that uh, that got me into thinking about um, about vaccine nationalism.
1: Yeah, um, if you're trading off the benefits of waiting versus the benefits of of acting early, um. There are many aspects that feed into the benefit of acting earlier. Of course, there's the, the health impact and everything like that. But in a UK context, just after Brexit, it feels like from a political perspective, this is a much greater value to, in terms of, of, of winning. So maybe, uh, you know, that, I wonder, was, was that a factor to play? Um,
0: I mean, the truth is that any country within the European Union could have done what the UK want, uh, actually did within the existing framework. Uh, I mean, each country, remember, vaccines were traditionally uh, not delegated to the European Union. And so each country could, in principle, have done that. And there was a choice to be made. And the UK was, uh, despite having been invited to actually join uh, the, the, the common procurement, uh, decided to opt out. So I, I, I have no doubt that that was a strategic and political decision to to go mm. earlier, um, not just to secure the vaccines earlier, but also as a as an exercise in political signalling. And in fact, Boris Johnson, yes. the prime minister, has subsequently ex- explicitly said that it was Brexit that allowed the UK to do so well. Uh, although, of course, uh, people disagree on whether that is indeed the case. But but it's clear that as as a as an exercise in in in, in political muscle flexing, this has been a very useful one for the United Kingdom.
1: Yeah, and just i don't know if if you don't know this question this is fine but it's something that that i've come across in the past regarding the whole um when the oxford vaccine was developed um it was suggested that they were going to release it um like the ip freely but uh, in a consultation with government advisors they were they were linked with AstraZeneca and it became private i wonder was that would that would that fit into that political aspect or not or is is there any truth in that so
0: i i i have read uh, reports in the media that describe the the whole process uh from from the early. so so indeed it was a, an oxford based uh outfit that that came up with the i p and several mm-hmm. decisions had to be made uh, and and i know that there was strong pressure from the university's uh side to to make the i p publicly available i think they got to a a compromise which was to uh, to license it, or to basically to work together with AstraZeneca, who committed to actually not make a profit um, in uh, during the crisis for for anywhere in the world, and subsequently in perpetuity for the developing countries. So this is probably yeah. the compromise they came up with. Now, what is true is that early early on in this process, the Oxford team uh, had initially made contact with Merck, which is of course a US based uh, pharmaceutical company who is one of the big uh, companies that are, that are already present in the vaccine market, whereas AstraZeneca had much, much less um, experience in, in vaccine production. And that decision seems to have been almost exclusively done uh, because of pressure from the UK government, who wanted um, a, a UK-based company to be the, um, to be the pharmaceutical partner to, to Oxford. So that decision okay. seems to have been almost exclusively made for uh, what you could term, you know, vaccine nationalist uh, reasons.
1: Right. We're slightly tangential to economics here, but I want to bring it back to the economics in sure. that uh, if if it was a case that they went down this private route, that would mean that the capacity would be more limited and therefore that would give more weight to this preemptive action then. So that's sort of my, my thinking on that. If that was actually part of the thought process, so, so this, is,
0: this is very hotly debated right now, whether intellectual property uh, is going to make a big difference in terms of, of ramping up capacity. Uh, don't forget that Pfizer, for example, has offered to make its, uh, its IP uh, available to anybody who, who wants to, uh, to produce, and that has not mm. created a large increase in production. Uh, similarly, if there was unused capacity out there, and uh, and um for example astrazeneca wanted to ramp up production they would have ample incentive to do so because they found themselves in hot water of course with having not being able to uh, to deliver the to the eu uh, what they had promised to do so so it's yeah. not just a matter of intellectual property they also have to have the know-how and to have yeah. you know the capacity it's not like producing car tires or something like that it's a very delicate process and so um it's not so clear that intellectual property is is uh is you kind know, of the silver bullet that's going to solve it's this a constraint. In the short
1: run yeah okay 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 that that clears it up in my mind okay that 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 was actually really useful thanks yeah. um so let me just say um so you've done like so you've done a lot of work on issues such as um we're talking about social distancing and managing immunity maybe we can just move on to to discuss some of the issues around social distancing um sure. what so you've looked at what's maybe the optimal social distancing and maybe comparing what tends to happen in equilibrium in that if we let people behave as we expect them to to behave versus what would happen if we have optimal an optimal situation that is maybe where we have a social planner deciding what's best for everybody and who's maybe can see everything perf- with perfect foresight um can you tell us maybe a bit about well, what exactly? What, what would we like to see, and what maybe tends to play out in terms of what you found in your research? So, so let's
0: uh, let's let's start maybe from uh, from from one end, and then and then chew our way through to the other end of a uh, of of, of full, fully decentralized behavior. So let us just look at what would a what would a social planner do? What would a an I a, a benevolent and 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 well informed and omnipotent mm-hmm. social planner do? So. Typically in these models, let's just take for, for, for simplicity uh, the simplest framework that has been used a lot in the literature, which is a model where you have susceptible in, in, individuals, infected individuals, and recovered individuals. And this just assume for simplicity that recovery means that you are no longer immune. We can then talk about what happens if that is no longer the case later, because that actually changes the calculation a little bit. Now, what you would typically do uh, in this kind of setting as a social planner is you're going to um, introduce lockdown measures in the case of lockdowns uh, that is roughly proportional to the number of of infections. And so what happens is that early on in the epidemic, you have moderate social distancing measures. Uh, As infection ramps up over time, you will intensify those measures. And at some point when you're over the hump, you will then relax those measures. So this is has popularly been, been referred to as, as flattening the curve. Now, this mm. is true. This policy is optimal in most of these models, even if you had no uh, ICU capacity. So it's not, a, it's not an issue of trying to not overwhelm the health system. This is true even without having to, to think about that additional constraint. So that's what a social planner would do. Now, let's talk about what, what an individual would do. Well, the individual, uh, when faced with the possibility of of, uh, of an infectious disease, will basically make a cost benefit analysis, and and, and the cost benefit analysis is is fairly straightforward, which is that by reducing exposure to the disease, you reduce the probability of becoming infected with all the negative consequences of that. Now, what are, the, what, are the, what are the costs of social distancing? Well that's basically not being able to go to work not going to the cinema not seeing your loved ones uh, all those things okay we don't need to think about it just in in, in terms of lost earnings is all the all the bad things of of not mm-hmm. you know conducting everyday normal life now similar in in some sense very similar to to the vaccination decision when individuals choose whether or not to to socially distance they will not typically take into account the, uh, the, the effects that the decisions have on third parties. And so, again, we find an instance of, of, um, of under-provision of a public good. And this is exactly why uh, many economists have, have argued for, uh, for there to be uh, government-imposed lockdowns rather than just letting the, uh, the infection rip. Because individuals, even though they do have some interest in protecting themselves, that interest is not strong enough from a social perspective. And so you end up in a situation where, you know, where a social planner would want that to be more social distancing and happen earlier than than would otherwise be the case in equilibrium. Okay. So that's kind of the that's the big finding um, in, in this literature basically. So it's not just that 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 the social planner would want people to protect themselves because they don't realize themselves that it's good for them. It's rather that even if people were to realize that they should protect themselves, even then they don't have the strong incentives to do enough of it.
1: Okay. Okay. And and it's because of this external effect. It's because of the, the network effect of me passing it on to somebody else. That's exactly. we're not fully accounting for this. Okay. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so
0: exactly. So 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 if exactly. So if there was one individual on on a desert island, uh, and and that person was in, were, in, were infected. Uh, then, uh, you know, the social planner would have no more or less incentive to treat this person from the infection than the individual himself or herself, because there's no third party that, that, that this will have an influence on.
1: Sure. And, okay, so we have this wedge between what's perhaps socially optimal and what's perhaps op- privately optimal, where we sort of fall in equilibrium if left to our own devices. Um And are there any ways, like, so from your research, are there any ways that you can see how you can sort of tweak people's behavior to get them towards the social optimal?
0: So this is is one of those situations where uh, the, the economic theory is extremely clear on what you should do, but it's also completely obvious that it's very difficult to do in practice. So... So okay. in, in in some of my papers I, I basically I, I I find instruments that exactly solves this externality problem and it's a set of uh, of uh, taxes and, and subsidies Pigovian types taxes and subsidies that you can either um, impose on on the instrument in this case say social distancing so you you basically uh, incentivize additional social distancing by paying people or you can do it directly on the health state. But of course, that's put completely politically untenable. So for example, these kind of subsidies would involve uh, penalizing people who get infected uh, by say, uh, levying a tax on them. Now, of course, that's just not, that's a non-starter ethically because yeah. you, don't, you don't want to penalize people who are already infected by making their lives worse. But mathematically, it solves the incentive problem because it tells people that if you get infected, you're really going to have a, a very unpleasant time, plus you're going to be taxed. And so it, it, it creates the right ante for people to, uh, mm-hmm. to modify behavior. Now, in practice, of course, we can't use these very fine-tuned instruments, but there are other things we can do. Um, and these have, have to do, for example, with uh, providing the right kind of support uh, for people who are um, infected to, uh, to behave responsibly. So, for example, statutory sick pay, we know that uh, people who are on low incomes, if they don't get sick pay, then they might be more willing to go back to work even with symptoms. So there's recent empirical literature that asks people to self-report these kind of behaviors. And indeed, you find that people who have additional support to self-isolate are more, uh, are more willing to do so. In another context, something very similar, uh, the incentives to get tested. If you don't have symptoms, say, uh, but, uh, but you're getting offered a test, you might actually be hesitant to get tested because you know that if you were to t- test positive, you're going to be required uh, to, to self-quarantine and maybe name also friends and family who you've been into contact with and so on and so forth, which can have kind of consequences for them afterwards. So mm. there are all sorts of different margins on which we can actually help people do the right thing by structuring the fiscal and support system around people in such a way as to align with the incentives to do the right thing purely from an epidemiological perspective.
1: Sure. Um, You remind me of what what has become common in the media nowadays, um, this uh, vaccine vaccine dividend in the sense that if you're vaccinated, then you can perhaps engage a bit more in normal day-to-day living. But that is perhaps an incentive to get vaccinated and helps... You know these are sort of, perhaps is one of these um instruments that could be levied in, in that context.
0: You're absolutely correct. so uh, there in fact, there are two kinds of such of such things that point in the same direction. The first one is let's say uh, a, a, a policy mandated by the state that that actually differentiates between people according to their vaccine status. that would be something like vaccine passports. But also uh, businesses themselves have now increasingly required both of their employees but also of their customers that they become vaccinated. So, so indeed these are situations in which uh, in which other things than, than just direct payments will actually incentivize people to get vaccines. And it's notable that most of the of the opposition to, to vaccine passports have not come from, from this angle but have come from a civil liberties angle. Which is that you should not differentiate between people, you know, depending on, on whether they've been vaccinated or not. Uh, nobody has made the case, it seems to me, uh, or at least not convincingly, so that uh, that would be inefficient to make that distinction between people according to whether or not they have been vaccinated. So I completely agree that this is another way through which incentives can be provided. But again, it runs against this very heartfelt uh, opposition to to dis- discriminate between people based on
1: vaccines. One thing then that you have worked on also is looking at immunity and how we manage immunity. Um, and you've looked at the differences between treatment and a vaccine. Um, I think, well, maybe, I wonder, could you perhaps just give us some in, insight in, into some of your research on that? And one thing that I, sure. I find very interesting is how we manage it in anticipation of of a vaccine, which is, I suppose, where we are at the moment. But. Um,
0: yeah, so so there's a whole host of different issues. Let me maybe take them take them one at a time. The first one is the thing about immunity, uh, and so the question really uh, is do we do we ever g- really get immunity? Um, so most of the modeling that has taken place over the past year has used this famous SIR framework, that assumes that people are just you know once they recover that they are basically safe. Uh, now that turns out to to specify a very specific kind of policy from the from the uh, health authorities' perspective, which is the one I mentioned earlier, that if you ramp it up, and then you basically relax after some time. So what, we, what I did with my co-authors, Chrissy Yanitsaru and Stephen Kistler, is that we took uh, an, an extended framework known as the SIRS model, which is uh, basically modeling the, the idea that after a time, uh, after having recovered, your immunity to the disease wanes over time. And that typically takes, with many similar diseases, it takes about one to two years. So that means that if you've had COVID today, uh, then in a year or two from now, you are actually so you are back in the susceptible pool. Now, what that does is that it radically changes the cost-benefit calculation from the social planner. And the reason is as follows. So think of it this way, that each time you get infected, you're basically at risk of, of death. Okay? And this is something we would like to uh, we would like to avoid, and that's why we are willing to expend resources by closing down the economy and so on to reduce that, that probability. Now the thing is that if your immunity if your immunity lasts forever, then basically each person we save from from becoming infected is, is or each person sorry that um, that recovers is safe in perpetuity. And will never constitute a risk to third parties because they are basically immune. Now, when immunity wanes over time, then what happens is that each individual who comes in, who who uh, who can become infected, is at risk of death today, but will also, if they survive, be at risk of death tomorrow. Uh, well, a year from now, or two years from now, and again, two to four years from now, and so on and so forth. So, in so what happens is that. The the, You can think of it as the grim reaper coming periodically to basically harvest a part of the population, and it never ends. And so what that means is that protecting people from getting infected in the first place and and controlling the infectious disease just becomes infinite, not infinitely, but radically more valuable than the baseline model with permanent immunity. And so that just, just shows us that a seemingly innocuous change to, to modeling assumptions here makes a very, very important difference in terms of policy that, um, that, that the cost-benefit analysis or the, the calculation just changes a lot depending on whether you, you model this uh, the, the buildup of immunity or permanent immunity or not. So that's, uh, So that's the first one. Uh, now, in terms of uh, of the of the other work on on population immunity, which which I've done with uh, Bob Ro- uh, Rothon, uh, my my longtime collaborator, so what we look at there uh, is we are trying to contrast the economic approach to uh, to building up population immunity with the traditional approach taken in in epidemiology and and public health, and I think maybe uh, the 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 easiest way to explain that is to work backwards and, and just explain what is the traditional approach and then maybe point out what, what we as economists think that is somewhat misleading about that approach, if that's all right?
1: Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah? absolutely.
0: Okay. So so many people have probably heard this idea of, uh, of, uh, of the basic reproduction ratio, this uh, RT uh, uh, parameter, which is basically a measure of how many secondary infections a given infection will create in an otherwise susceptible population. So we heard many times that the reproductive ratio is above one or now it's below one. And this, of course, is a measure of whether we are, infections are growing or whether they are on their way down. Now, the traditional approach taken in the public health literature is basically that if you can create Uh, conditions such that that this reproduction ratio is is less than one, in some sense, you've achieved what you needed to achieve. So, for example, if you look at the vaccination literature, they basically say that if you vaccinate, say, 86% of the population, then the disease will be eradicated. Okay, So this is exactly where these calculations come from. They basically ask, how many people do I need to vaccinate for this reproduction ratio to go below one? And this is known as herd immunity. Now, the problem with with this type of calculation is that it completely confounds uh, feasibility with desirability. And what I mean by that is that it does not actually. Ca- this kind of calculation does not take into account whether or not we want to control the disease, and if we want to control the disease, whether we want to do more or less than is necessary just to obtain uh, herd immunity. So let me give you two examples. Let me give you an example of very benign uh, disease. Uh, let's take, for example, athlete's foot. So athlete's foot is a, is a highly contagious disease. Um, let's just say for the sake of argument that the reproduction ratio of, uh, of, uh, of athlete's foot is, is five. Okay. So that's far beyond mm. the one threshold that we are we talking about. Now, the question is, should we close down the economy? Uh, and close all swimming pools for for 2 years in order to eradicate athlete's foot i think everybody would agree that this does not make any sense from an economic mm. perspective but that already indicates that whether or not we're above 1 or, or is really not what matters here is basically the seriousness of disease cannot be ignored in making that calculation so let me now go to another extreme let's let's look at some disease for which the basic reproduction ratio is is slightly below one. Uh, And suppose that it's extremely painful and and extremely unpleasant to become infected. Would, Would we stop vaccinating people when we just reach the one threshold? Well, surely not. It's so unpleasant, we would like to vaccinate many more people because by doing so, you actually reduce the number of infections. So again, Uh, we we see that whether or not we are above one really is not the the key point here. The key point is to apply whatever measure you have in mind, in this case, vaccines, so that your marginal cost and marginal benefit in social terms, of course, are equalized. And that may or may Mm -hmm. not lead to to herd immunity. Depends on on the kind of disease, whether you want to do that. And so in, in this work, we basically... Uh, we basically take this this issue seriously and we show that uh, how much you want to treat or how much you want to vaccinate depends not just on the infectiousness of the disease, which is which is caught by kind of the, the properties of the disease and so on. But it also depends on on whether this is a, a disease that 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 just is very unpleasant. So that's that's what that that work basically does.
1: Okay uh, that rem- that sort of relates to some thoughts that I've had recently in that um, if we're in a situation where vulnerable people are vaccinated and the chance of hospitalization is quite low well then we're in a world where the COVID-19 is something that, that I mean, people get mild cases of and therefore if the reproduction rate is five like athletes foot well then it's less of a concern than if it's if, that's it's, ex- if it's quite low or not.
0: That's exactly right. It, 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 it's almost so you know so commonsensical that, that we almost shouldn't even talk about it, right? If a disease yeah. is less in, in, in the extreme case of an infectious disease that has almost no symptoms, we don't care how infectious it is because it doesn't change anyone's lives. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, not maybe in a small way, but in a way that can be easily, that can be very, well, like, so that can be managed. Let, essentially. Let's, let's,
0: let's just think of a fictitious disease that, that whenever you get infected, you get an extra freckle. Okay. That's all it does.
1: <laughs> right, okay. right.
0: Well, and <laughs> yeah, suppose sure. it has a reproduction ratio of 200. I, I, we would only write about this as a curiosity. We wouldn't actually do anything about it. Right.
1: Sure. If, we, if we're approaching a situation where, like, like what we're in now, um, and we're ho- hopefully we're getting to a stage where people are getting vaccines and we can see uh, in countries that have high rollouts that, 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 that numbers are looking more favourable, how should we deal with social distancing in that context? What, what, what should, what's the optimal strategy?
0: So, so there, there are two issues here. So I, I've written two different papers that kind of speak to that question. So one of them, uh, it asks basically, suppose that, that we have vaccine on the horizon. So this is a work I've done with the Miltos uh, Um So the question is, uh, suppose that, you know, the vaccine has been now uh, developed. Uh, we are a country that is waiting for, for the shipments to, to land in, in, in our country. Uh, and we're asking ourselves, well, given that we have two or three months left between now and then, what should we do? So I don't know if you remember early on when, when vaccine news seemed to be good. There was in some quarters, mm. people were saying, oh, you know, you know, help is around the corner. Now we can just relax. We've been saved. okay? And what, what we find in our paper that this is just fundamentally misleading uh, or misjudged. And the reason is that uh, a vaccine is only useful... For people who are susceptible, if, if you're no longer susceptible, you can't benefit from the vaccine. And so in some sense, uh, once the vaccine arrives on the horizon, what it, what it is optimal to do is to, to redouble your efforts to make sure that as many pos- people as possible within reason can actually benefit from the vaccine. Let, let's just take mm. the extreme o- other case for, uh, just as a, as a benchmark. Suppose that the vaccine has arrived, but everyone has already been infected. Well, in that case, the vaccine is just not going to make much, much difference, right? You can't benefit from it because everybody who, who could get the disease already got the disease and there's no one left to protect. And so what we show is that once the vaccine arrives on the horizon, you really want to ramp up your efforts, in order to uh, to benefit from the vaccine, you don't want to relax your 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 social distancing measures. You want to go the other way, okay? So this this yeah. is so this is one insight I think is important and uh, and and has clear you know political uh, consequence of, in terms of, of policy at least. Now the second thing is is what it has been the experience uh, after the actual rollout, and, and this touches upon uh, an empirical paper that I I've recently released uh, with uh, Chris Old. And what we're looking at is what is the experience in terms of social distancing and policy uh, after the vaccine has been rolled out. So we know, for example, that there are some countries that have rolled out very extensively, notably Israel, the United Kingdom, uh, and some other countries, or U.S. as well. Whereas in other countries, uh, we're very, very early on in the rollout process. And so what we looked at is to try to figure out whether this rollout influenced Two things. First of all, uh, social uh, distancing measures as measured by uh, Google mobility data. And we also looked at policy stringency uh, measured by the Oxford um, index on policy stringency. And, and we found a, a number of, of interesting things. So one of the first things we, we, we wondered about is whether we could say that vaccines were being rolled out in countries that needed it the most, in the sense that these were the countries that had the worst um, uh, kind of epidemiological situation, okay? So they were rolled Mm -hmm. out based on need. And we found that once you control for income, that that's not the case. So basically, the countries that rolled out most fast were also the ones that were the wealthiest countries. Now, this might not come as a surprise to people who have, have have studied this carefully, but, but it's interesting now to have it quantified that this is, in in fact, the mm. case. Now, the second finding we found is that in countries that roll out faster, uh, both social distancing and uh, government-mandated restrictions also are, are decreasing the fastest. And so that's perhaps not completely surprising. And the reason is that... Uh, Vaccines offer an imperfect substitute for social distancing. It's just that uh, it it is more effective than social distancing in in slowing down infections. And it also Mm. is much, much less expensive, of course, because, you know, vaccines, you don't need to close down the economy just because people have Mm. been vaccinated, right? Now, what we have not yet found out is whether people relax social distancing because they themselves have been vaccinated or whether this is a reaction to other people vaccinating themselves. So, for example, if if you are in a household, say you and your spouse, uh, if you get vaccinated, uh, then you change your behavior because you're no longer at risk, but your spouse is also less at risk, and so uh, the spouse might also change behavior. And this is something we are now trying to look at in, in, in forthcoming research, trying to tease apart those effects and figure out, What are these aggregate changes in social distancing? Where do they come from? So that's uh, that's still, unfortunately, not uh, something we've completed yet, but this is something we're now working on.
1: Okay, well, that's that's really interesting um, piece of research. And just, I suppose I should flag, we've moved on from perhaps talking about what what should happen to what has happened. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. For the economists who are listening and some who are really data nerds, it would be interesting to hear how... You, you went about that research. So you got Google mobility data yeah. and you're a, for each country. And then what sort of, so did that data give you like micro data, how people were moving around and were able to then, is that?
0: Right. So the Google mobility data, which is free for all to use, and there's other data sets that basically do similar thing. It basically, it basically tracks people's mobile phones. And so uh, right. against, against the benchmark of what happened uh, the a year prior, we know whether people spend more or less time in particular uh, contexts. So we can, for example, see, let's just say in March last year, we could see that uh, relative to the same time the year uh, prior, uh, when when the uh, epidemic started, people suddenly started uh, spending less time in retail settings and in public transport settings and so on, and spending more time at home. And so that's why this Mm. is such a useful indicator of social distancing because it gives us a rough idea of how much time people spend uh, in context where one would expect the infectious disease to, to, to be a real risk. And so this, uh, this, okay. is, uh, this is one of the many new data sources that have been uh, been used in the, in the literature. Other sources include uh, you know, credit card transactions data, uh, but also time, for example, uh, in uh, public transport we know stuff about, uh, and also footfall data. Uh, on the, for example, on the high street. So there are all sorts of wonderful new data sources that have been used uh, to mm. to try to map out social distancing measures.
1: So you take a data set of mobility by date or by time, of, and you match that with vaccine rollout and pro- progress in terms of vaccine, and then you can. That's your research strategy, I suppose. Exactly, that's exactly right. So we we use it. We do it for
0: 122 different countries. But, uh, but right. the data is available wow. at much, much lower scale. So you can do city by city. So you can go in and see, wow. you know, in, in, in Dublin, what, what happened in Dublin, uh, you know, compared to last year. For this country. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, Unfortunately, okay. wow. unfortunately we, we don't have, uh, we have not yet used vaccine rollout for, for, at city level.
1: We do it by country level. Okay, it's a, it's yeah, it's really interesting to see all these new data sets um, yeah. and networks that are established to share information uh, post pandemic. But um, yeah, um, well, okay, well, Flavio, well, thanks a million. Uh, I don't know if it was there was anything else you wanted to discuss, but um, that was really, really interesting.
0: No, that that that's been. I think we've we've gotten quite a
1: bit around this literature. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a million. I, I really appreciate it, and um, uh, yeah, thank, th- thanks very much. Okay, a pleasure, Niall. Thank you very much. Thanks to Flavio and thank you for listening. Until next time.